You're listening to Sober Onions Podcast, where we peel back the layers of sobriety, featuring your host, Crystal Morrell. Hey guys, it's Crystal. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Onions Podcast. This is part one of Martin Lockett. The second half of our interview, unfortunately, did not record, so we're going to record again, but I wanted to put out part one so you can enjoy it and listen to his testimony and see how much he's doing for the recovery world. You can find him at martinlockett.com. Enjoy! Hey everyone, it's Crystal from Sober Onions Podcast. I have my friend Martin Lockett here. Today we're going to interview, and I am really excited. I have had a challenging month. I basically got diagnosed with lupus and which kind of spiraled into like a mental depression because I was in this like mode of, oh my God, how many years did this is this gonna knock off my life? And just really like kind of feeling sorry for myself, um, which can happen, you know, to everybody. So I have just been kind of struggling, going to work, um, been going to extra meetings just because I really felt like I needed that balance of strength, you know, instead of feeling sorry for myself. And one of the things in my program, they teach you to, you know, get away from self, you know, get out of self and do service and give to others. And then you start thinking about other people and not yourself. And it just really, really has helped me. And so I've been working um, at a job where this is my first job that I did not drink at. Like every other job I would drink maybe right before or maybe after. I mean, I would literally drink like two beers before I taught a dance class. Like it was just something that I only knew drinking with work. And most of the time it worked because I was the boss. So like, you can't fire yourself. So I, you know, I just always turned to the bottle whenever anything was hard. And so I got sober and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I worked in the food and beverage industry which is where a lot of my drinking is because, you know, I'll tell the bartender, Hey, make me a cocktail and I'm going to drink it or, you know, free beer. And because I'm, I'm running the restaurant. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do, which is huge. It's like, okay, I'm 41 years old. What am I doing with my life? Right. Like completely starting over because I got sober. So I didn't want to go back into food and beverage because I just felt like I wasn't strong enough that I would drink that I would, you know, relapse because it's just all around me. And so I just kind of started applying for like manager positions or at, you know, administrative positions and everywhere in California. I just didn't really know where um, God was going to land me. And I ended up getting two offers for one was to help manage a, um, a terminal at a, at a small airport because there used to be a flight attendant. And so I was kind of thinking maybe if I go back into that industry, it'll help me not drink. And then I went and applied to uh, Five Diamond Resort, again, out of anything where I was around alcohol all day. So which was a huge decision. And I think that people don't ever talk about that, about how once you get sober, like your career where you spend most of your time, if you're working 40 hours a week, like is essential to your sobriety. Like someone who gets sober and they're a bartender, like hats off to you if you can bartend sober. I don't think you're in as much of an addiction as I am because I couldn't do that. Like I couldn't have it 
spilling on my hands or the smelling of it. And that was something that was huge in my recovery in the beginning. I thought it was like totally good. And then a bottle of wine broke in front of me and I smelt it. And I was like, oh my God, like, like just rushed over me. Like I want to drink so bad. So I, um, so I, I ended up going with the resort and it's totally a different position. I feel like I had all these emotions of like, this is a step down in life. And, you know, I'm here because I'm sober and I have to show that I can, you know, have a career without drinking and, you know, just trying to prove myself to my family members and myself. And, um, it's been going and it's been very challenging, but, um, yesterday, I was getting ready to leave work and they announced that I got associate of the quarter, which is huge, like ginormous because one, it's five diamond resort. So that's going to open doors for me Two, I've only been there six months and you have to be there a year to get this. So I don't know how that happened. And like three, it was, I felt like finally some good news. Finally, my work is paying off. Finally me showing up on time sober every day is working for me. And so I couldn't believe it. I was so proud. Of course, I sent it to my daughter and my parents and um, where I work is very renowned where we're at. So it was just a big deal anyway that I had that job. And so to get the associate of the quarter was just huge. And so that was yesterday. And I was just like, I was driving home and all I could think of was I couldn't have got that if I was drinking because I'd be hung over. I'd be late. I felt like this position was, you know, a step down because I wasn't managing a bunch of people, which is what I normally do. You know, I have 75 to hundred employees. And so now I had no employee except for myself. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, basically my own boss, making sure I was there on time and making sure I was doing everything right, you know, and there were some challenges because I got stuck in some situations of drama where like something happened with the contract. And like, I was like, oh my gosh, did I, did I, you know, put 8,000 instead of 80,000? Like <laughs> totally freaking out, like I'm going to ruin everything. And so to get that like award was huge. And I, I only share it like not to brag or be like, Oh, Hey, what I got. It's just because I couldn't have done it without God and sobriety because at the end of my uh, end of my addiction, I was so unmanageable and my, my mental thoughts were unmanageable. I was, you don't deserve this. You know, nobody needs you, you know, crying in my shower, thinking that I was all alone. And that is why I'm so vocal about my recovery is because I had no idea this whole world existed. I had no idea there was a sober community on social media. I had no idea the people that I would meet. I didn't even know that there were sober books. Like I didn't know anything. And so for someone like me, who I do marketing as well for some companies, for me not to have known that there was a sober like society that helps and uplifts you and keeps you accountable was huge to me. So that was, you know, where I was at, where I was like, I have to tell everyone because I want them all to be able to tap into something. Cause you just never know if I would have had this resource, I probably would have gotten sober a lot earlier and might've had more relapses. I don't know. God knows why I am sober right now. And you know, the timing of it, but that was kind of huge because I was just like shocked 
And I have like my associates when I got the job, they were not thrilled because they don't hire out. They don't outsource. They always hire within because there's 800 employees. And so like you come in and maybe you're working this, you know, front desk and then you work up to, you know, each position. And so when I came in, I was, I landed a position in sales that people were chomping at the bit for. (laughs) So, so like, from the beginning, I've had these like vultures, like, you know, waiting for me to screw up so that they could take my job. So then yesterday, when I get this award, of course, they're even more ticked because they've been there five years and they've never gotten it. And I just like, I walked out of there, like, like tiptoeing, like, bye guys, have a great weekend, you know, and they're all just like throwing, you know, (laughs) they're throwing knives at my back. (laughs) And um, so (laughs) I was just like leaving and then I'm walking and I'm like, you know, I'm anonymous at work too. So they don't know anything, you know, they they always talk about drinking and all this stuff and they're all hung over all the time and they're all in their like twenties and thirties. And so, you know, I'm, my kids are their age. So yesterday it was just interesting. And I just was all I could think of was, you know, what kept me sober. And it was this podcast keeping, you know, accountable to the people that listen and learning so much from the people that I interview and all the different topics. And so that's where I'm at today. <laughs> so maybe next month or next episode, you're going to hear that, that one of my coworkers <laughs> decided to knock me off or something. So <laughs> I am really excited to introduce you guys um, to Martin. He, I uh, found him online, I believe, or I, I think you emailed me because um, you just have like a program where you are a professional speaker. But Martin, is a speaker, counselor, author. You're a blogger. I didn't even know people still blog. I didn't, I really didn't. I'm that bad. I'm like, they're still blogging. Like just like Pinterest. I forget Pinterest is there. Like I can't keep up. It's like TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, like blog. Like I'm, I'm like, okay, I got to stay in my lane or I'm like going to lose my hair's going to fall out. So you actually, um, you took your, addiction to a conviction. And that is where you ended up one night um, in a DUI situation, but actually there was a fatality. And so I am really excited to hear about your story, what you're doing today, and you know what, what your message is to us, because obviously I can't relate. I've, I've never had a DUI, knock on wood, because I don't even know how that is uh, possible because I used to drive with like a white claw in my console. And when I go to meetings, I literally, it's all DUIs. Everyone there is DUI. And it's really, really sad to me that a DUI has become the norm. Like for me and the way I grew up, it like getting a DUI would mean like, you know, exile from my family. Like it was not okay. And now I'll meet people and they're like, yeah, I've had one or two, you know, and it's like, okay. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like one or two and you're okay with this. Like, and so it, it's really something I don't really relate to in the sense that it's happened to me, but I can relate to drinking and driving and the guilt that I still have for doing it because I know um one of the things I read on your website 
you say uh, drinking is your business and drinking and driving is everyone else's business. And that hit me because I was like, man, I used to drink and drive all the time. And I think the listeners are going to really tune in to your story because I can't me. I don't, I haven't met anyone with addiction that hasn't drunk, drank and drunk. They might not have gotten a DUI, but I have to this day, it's been 14 months that I've been in meetings at events and met somebody that cannot say they did not drink and drive. And to me, that's just catastrophic. And so getting the message out there is really important to me and I'm sure really important to you. So what I want to do is introduce you, say hi, and maybe a little bit about your story and what happened that night. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be here and congratulations on that huge accolade at work. That's that's really awesome. And again, for you to just recognize that it was your commitment to sobriety and recovery that has enabled you to be recognized in this way because you've done the work. And so I think that's really, really, really important to, to stress. So yes, I started drinking at age 14 and I will just kind of gloss over that really quick because I do want to get into the actual night that that led to everything for almost the next 20 years. But let's just say that my drinking rapidly progressed into addiction by age 16. And I persisted in that addiction until around age 24, where it was New Year's Eve of 2003. The day started off like any normal day. I had kissed my girlfriend goodbye. I lived in Vancouver, Washington at the time, which is about a half hour from Portland, just right over the bridge. So I worked at a warehouse in Portland and we had gotten off work early because of the holiday. And it's about 1130 or so in the morning and we're about ready to clock out. And the boss jokes with us and says, now you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but please, please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page of the paper. Of course, we laugh it off and, you know, we clock out for the day. But as you can see, all these years later, I've never forgotten those prophetic words. And so I left work at about 1130. I went straight to the liquor store. I bought a fifth of gin. I then proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house. I drink the alcohol. He and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. So after I drank that fifth of gin, I then went back to the store where I bought four 24 ounce cans of beer. Now, the quick mathematicians will know that that's 96 ounces of beer that I drank between the hours of five and eight o'clock that night. So then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house and the three of us hang out and we drink a pint of Hennessy together. And now it's about 11 o'clock. So we go to exit his apartment to go to the party. And as we're walking out the door, his mother admonishes us and says, now you guys be careful tonight. You hear? And of course, we all say, yes, ma'am. You know, of course, obviously we had no intentions of being careful that night. So we get to the party. We have fun. We see a bunch of old classmates. We drink more alcohol, of course. We bring in the new year. Everything is great. We get into my vehicle. I take my friend home without incident. I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how extremely exhausted I am because I've been drinking all day. And I think I'd had one meal at about 4.30 that afternoon. 
So on the freeway, I begin to pick up my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, we should slow down. You know, the police are out, you know, it being a holiday and all. And I thought that makes sense. So I went ahead and slowed down and we continue to drive. About 10 minutes later, we take the exit. I'm now driving in a residential area. And again, I begin to pick up my speed now to about 60 miles an hour. And my brother grows angry with me and he says, slow down before we crash. And I snap back at him, man, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this. I've done this a hundred times. Nonetheless, just to appease him and keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive and I'm, I'm nearing the intersection where I'm going to drop him off. And he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, bro, let's, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And I'm thinking, great. You know, here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. So we continue to drive for a couple blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's another intersection. And I'm looking up at the light. And the light is clearly yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I knew I was not going to make this light. But it didn't matter because in a split second, I had made up my mind. I'm not going to wait. I'm going right through. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm almost tunnel vision, just looking straight forward. I didn't see anything to the right or left of me. And I accelerate quickly. I'm in a newer model vehicle. And just within two or three seconds, just boom. I mean, just the most earth shattering, deafening sound and impact had happened. And the airbag embellished my face and it felt like a parachute was suffocating me. My car comes to a slow winding halt and I realize that I'm alive. So this is good. I immediately look to my right. I see my brother, who's also alive and appears to be okay. So I'm somewhat relieved. Simultaneously, a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle. And most decent people at this time would go check on the people they had just hit. I did not because I was so consumed with superficiality and my vehicle and it was my prized possession. I worked so hard for it and I'm looking at it now in a heap of crumpled metal. And so I'm devastated. And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street where the car had landed about 60 feet away. And he's looking at somebody lying down on the pavement. He says, Hey man, I think I see somebody on the pavement over there and um, I don't think they're moving. So at that point it dawns on me, the magnitude and severity of what I had just done. And within seconds, of course, lights and sirens are everywhere. The policemen are on the scene. They're talking to me. They take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And about five minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had already known in my heart to be true, but I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be true. But he had confirmed that that person who was lying on the pavement had in fact died and that another was being driven by ambulance to the hospital just blocks away. And so I'm placed under arrest, I'm put into the back of the cruiser and we head downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio and there's a bunch of chatter about the crash, of course. And it sounds like about 10 minutes later, it sounded like someone else was in the vehicle unbeknownst to me who had been pronounced dead at the scene. And so I asked the officer, I said, excuse me, sir, did I just hear that correctly? Did I just hear that somebody else was in the vehicle and, and they died? He said, unfortunately, yes. So now there's two fatalities. There's another with life-threatening injuries who could potentially die. And I'm 24 years old. 
And I also know that the law in the state of Oregon requires a mandatory 10-year sentence for a DUI manslaughter day for day. You don't earn a single day off for good behavior or anything like that. And now there's two manslaughters in the first degree. So trying to process all of that while still heavily intoxicated, there's just no way. Wow. I mean, I came at 24 too, like, oh, like, you know, and you're still, you know, drunk a little bit. So it's like your perception of it is different too, like what you remember, but like, those are your core memories. So you ended up in the back of the, the cruiser, you end up in jail, and then you end up in front of a judge. What was the actual charge or what, what was the, what was the final um, assessment of what had happened? So you're arraigned the next morning and it was officially two counts of manslaughter in the first degree and an assault too for the guy who had been injured. And so the, the DUI manslaughters carry 10 years day for day. The assault two carries five years, 10 months day for day. And then there were three misdemeanors that I was given. And so, you know, three days later, I'm, I'm in my cell and I'm just, you know, minding my own business. And I noticed that someone had slid the, the Oregonian newspaper or statewide newspaper that slid it underneath my door. I didn't understand why that had happened. I didn't ask to see a paper and I pick it up and I begin to thumb through it. And I read that my victims were actually in recovery and they had, they had, they were in recovery at the time of this crash. They had volunteered with volunteers of America. They would, they would help women get clean and sober by watching their kids so that they could go to AA and NA meetings. They were volunteers with mothers, mothers against drunk driving. They were very active in the recovery community. In fact, I learned in this article that they were on their way home from a clean and sober new year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver and so the columnists had really highlighted the, the sheer irony of this, that this would happen to these wonderful people. And he said, quote, at the end of it, he gave a quote, and I, it changed my life forever, even to this day. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the, the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. Now, at the time, again, I'm only 24 years old. I know I'm looking at about 20 years in prison. I couldn't fully appreciate what he had just said and how those words were supposed to apply to my life. But it was such a profound statement that I, I couldn't ignore it. Right. So for the next several months, like I literally prayed about it and meditated on that phrase, hearing it over and over and over in my head. And then it came to me about seven or eight months later. And it came to me in the form of a strong conviction that the only way this tragedy will not just simply be a tragedy is if I carry on the legacies, right? If I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to ensure that something like this never happens again, that if I devote the rest of my life to helping people who are struggling in active addiction, because that's what they were doing at the time of their untimely deaths caused by me, then that's how I could honor their lives and try to prevent other families from feeling this sheer devastation that I had caused their families. So I committed to that in that moment. I didn't know how that would manifest over however many years I was going to spend in prison. I didn't know at the time. I'm still awaiting trial and things like that. But I was I was I was resolute to to make that my life's mission. And so 
And that was kind of where this journey, this journey of purpose began. Wow. I cannot believe that. I mean, what's weird about it is that they were in recovery and that they were um, advocates for, you know, DUIs and, and not drinking and driving. And honestly, I mean, they probably wouldn't be upset about it because it sends it such a message, you know, it's kind of like case in point, <laughs> you know, that's what they do. And guess what? Even they got hit by someone drinking and driving. And so I'm sure that message became stronger because of that, you know, have, have you met or talked to the families since you've been, um, I, I guess, charged with, with that? So a year later, when I was sentenced to the 17 and a half years, um, as you know, they do, they have a time for victim impact statements, right? So this is when their families and friends and anyone who wants to speak to the court and to me directly, you know, get that opportunity. And so there, she had a 15 year old daughter. One of the victims had a 15 year old daughter, an 18 year old daughter, 21 year old daughter, and a fiance, and all of them spoke. And surprisingly, and I prayed about this over the course of that year, that at some point that they will be able to forgive me because obviously I felt terrible, terrible, terrible about what I had done. Right. These were innocent, beautiful, amazing people going about their day the right way. And I took them. Right. And so um, much to my pleasant surprise, the majority of them did express uh, forgiveness for me. Uh, They 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 expressed that they were somewhat felt somewhat sorry for my family because I was going away for a really long time and that my family would miss me immensely. And they encouraged me to hug my mom every chance that I got because, you know, we never know when it's going to be my last and things like that. And it was just such a heartfelt uh, space. And so that's when I stood up and I addressed the courtroom that, you know, my indictment says that I acted with extreme indifference toward the value of human life. That's the way they were the manslaughter in the first degree charge. And I just told them that my feelings have been anything but indifferent since the day this happened and that I vow to spend the rest of my life trying to prevent other families from feeling this same this same devastation. And so fast forward to about a year and a half before I before I got out. So we're talking 16 years later. Mm-hmm. At at the height of the pandemic or at the beginning of the pandemic, and I get a letter from a woman. I didn't know who it was, but I recognize the name because the name is the same as her mother's who passed away. And my heart just sank. I didn't know what was going to be in that envelope. And I opened it up and it's just a little yellow notepad letter. And she says, hi, my name is, you know, she says her name. I'm the daughter of, you know, one of my victims. She said her name, obviously. And then she said, I can't help but to think about you and all the men who are locked up during this this pandemic. It must be so difficult for you guys. If there's anything I can do for you, if I can send you money or toilet paper or food or, you know, all these things, please let me know. Um, I just wanted to check on you and see how like she didn't mention anything about the crash, anything about her mom, anything about anything other than offering support for me. And like I had to just sit with that for like two or three days before I could even muster a response because I was so touched. It was so unexpected and it was just so heartfelt. And so I crafted like a six page letter front and back. And I'm telling her about all these things that I've done since I've been in because I needed her to know that I wasn't just giving lip service when I addressed the courtroom all those years prior. I wasn't just saying what sounded good 
for the media or to the families that, that this is a lifelong commitment. And so these are the things I've done. You know, I've gotten degrees. I've learned about addiction. I have a master's in psychology. I got certified as a substance abuse counselor. I speak at DUI victim impact panels within the prison. You know, I go to AA, you know, and, and so she wrote me back and she said, this is the best possible outcome that we could have asked for. And so she just, she was just so congratulatory and, and, you know, just so supportive. Now it's been, it's been about two and a half years since, since we've had any contact and we're actually prohibited from having contact now that I'm on parole, because part of my parole conditions is that you can't, I can't reach out to them, but they can reach out to me if they want to. And so I may hear from her again at some point, but even if I don't, I feel like I got the final closure, which I didn't even know I needed, honestly, but it was so validating to hear from her that she was she was pleased with with how I spent my time and that this mission that I've that I've devoted my life to. So that was really, really gratifying. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. What what I, I mean, I'm speechless in the sense that it's incredible that you had this happen to you, you know, almost two decades ago and you were so young and that, you know, even we, I remember when I was young, I said, if I told somebody I was going to do something, I might not have, you know, like I might have thought like, Oh, I'm going to do this. I promise. Right. <laughs> and you're 24. So it's like, okay. Um, but to, to stick to that promise and to represent those families in the light that they would want that, that, you know, they're looking down on you and what you're doing. And that's what they wanted. You know, that's what they were trying to accomplish was to prevent that from happening to another family. And I think that that's, that's incredible. So, I mean, I'm curious, you have, you know, obviously you've done so much with your life and you're doing great and you're spreading the message and you have written a book or two. I have them. So, um, if you can see this, um, but I'm curious, what was your life like before, before that night? So as I mentioned, I started drinking around age 14. So I grew up, I have both parents, very loving household, a twin brother, two older sisters. You know, we didn't have a lot of money and we grew up in a impoverished neighborhood and there was gangs and drugs and crime and all that stuff. But my parents did everything they could to shield my siblings and me from that chaos. Right. My dad had us in Little League baseball and Pop Warner football and Cub Scouts and, and wrestling and all these these activities and events. And that was that was good until I got to high school, because now it's, you know, your peer group takes more of a central role in your life over your family. Right. And so for me, it was I was terribly shy and it was just, you know, it it was hard to meet new people. And so I kind of gravitated to other kids who actually happened to live in my neighborhood, but I had never met. And these kids, as many kids from, you know, not good areas tend to do. We're doing all the bad things, skipping school, drinking, smoking weed, stealing cars. And I would pretty much do anything I needed to do to be accepted. So even though I wasn't raised this way, that, that, you know, that's, you know, those were, those things were required of me if I was going to have a sense of belonging with this peer group. 
So around age 14, 15, started to drink alcohol, skip school, smoke weed, got into some trouble, got reprimanded, but it wasn't enough to prevent me from going back and hanging out with these kids that I, you know, seen in school every day. And so by age 16, I was a full-blown alcoholic because at this point, it's not just about the social lubrication that allowed me to come out of my shell and meet new people. Now I'm starting to manifest some really deep-seated insecurities and deficiencies and shortcomings in my life that was too difficult to manage, right? I was struggling with my identity and being, you know, black and poor and living in the hood. And I'm seeing my white middle-class classmates you know, they get cars when they turn 16 years old and they live in neighborhoods with manicured lawns and clean streets. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, all white people live this way and all black people live the way that I lived. And why is that so? And it started, I started to internalize just this, this low sense of self and where my life could, you know, could be. And there was, there was a ceiling I put on my life because I didn't see anybody around me you know, living, living better than I was. Right. And so that's where the insecurities and the identity issues really came into play. And I remember that I would, when I would hang out with my friends in the hood, I would wear, you know, the baggy gangster clothes and, you know, talk a certain way and, and, you know, put on the facade because that's what was required to be accepted. When I would hang, when I would work, I worked at a, uh, an ice cream parlor after school and all of my coworkers were white and I would hang out with them after work and I would change my clothes and put on the Tommy Hill figure and the polo and the, the preppy clothes. And I would change my vernacular to sound like them to be accepted amongst them. And so I'm, I'm navigating between two worlds for this social acceptance that I never really fully felt that I was getting from either group. So that's where the internal conflict really, really, you know, set in. And that's when the alcoholism was used more and more to just, numb that 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 anguish and that pain i know i think it's interesting that you bring up that topic because i feel like now more than ever like i was the same way you know i i would i would change to the group i was with and you know which in my mind made me popular because i was able to bounce in every type of group and really it was just me trying to fit in you know never feeling like i fit in and um now it's like with social media, it like breaks my heart because people are now just fed constantly all day, right? They're just on their phones like all day. Everybody's on their phones. And all of these things are being uh, projected at them that you have to look this way. You have to travel here. You have to, um, you know, if you make it, you know how you make it is if you end up being an influencer, right? That's like, that's the perception is like, now we have this, this world that is all trying to fit in to this little social media, like Ken and, you know, and Barbie thing where it's like, everything has to be perfect and in place. And so you just have all these broken people behind the scenes, you know, and social media can really, you know, make things seem great, just like you like putting on the Tommy Hilfiger, right? So you're like, I'm good. Like, I look good. I'm good. 
And social media kind of does the same thing now. You know, we we take a selfie and then there is a, you know, photo editing app, you know, so to get rid of, you know, under eyes and, you know, teeth whitening and all this stuff, right? So it, you know, nothing has changed. You know, nothing has changed. If not, it's gotten worse. And so I feel like that's why addiction has become so huge and people are struggling so much more because of COVID and, you know, having that opportunity to take their drinking or their using to another level. I mean, right now we are having more fentanyl overdoses than they even know what to do about. Like they don't even know how to handle it. Like, you know, my family, a couple of them are first respond in first responding. And, and literally they're like, it, we don't even know what to do with them. Like there's just so many, there's not enough of us to take care of all the overdoses and the suicides, because for some reason we as a society have decided that, you know, it's, it's okay to take that as an exit route. Right. So it's like, if I actually kill myself, then I might even get more followers or I might be more accepted or maybe this this thing in my head will be gone and I won't have to deal with it. And so we're drinking and drugging to suppress those feelings and then it turns into a craving. And so that craving then stimulates you wanting that drink or wanting that drug and you're like, I have to have it. You know, it's like, you know, in and out Burger. I have to have it because, you know, I'm in Florida. They don't have an In-N-Out Burger. So, you know, there's just things that, <laughs> yeah, a weird example, but um, there's just things that, you know, we, we really try to always fit in, right? And we don't know what to do with our identities. And I think too, and I don't know if um, this actually resonates to you, but once you got sober, now that you're back in society, do you feel like finding your identity um, was difficult or it was um, easy for you? I know for me, it wasn't because I'm struggling with sobriety being the only thing anybody ever sees with me. And I'm like, I am more than just not a drinker, you know, and Hey guys, it's Crystal. Unfortunately, the rest of my interview with Martin did not connect with my Zoom. I am so, so sorry. We plan on recording again, so stay tuned, but you can check out Martin at martinlockett.com. He's an amazing guy, and he has so much to offer to the recovery world. But thank you so much for listening, and I appreciate you, and there's more episodes to come. Remember, if I can do it, we can do it. Thank you for listening to Sober Onions podcast. All episodes, show notes, and resources are available at SoberOnions.com.